yeast. Known for being flaky. Famous for being bakey. Nobody thinks much about it, so let's have some fun. Let's find out why yeast is secretly incredibly fascinating. Welcome to a whole new podcast episode, a podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm not alone. I'm joined by my co-host, Katie Golden. Katie, hello. How are you? Hello. I'm here. Good. That's the plan. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, this is the first taping after like officially announcing to people that uh, all of these amazing things are happening, that Katie's here and I'm maximum fun. And and uh, also the Discord has been very fun. I figured out how to make like a permanent invite link. Shout out to Danny and maximum fun for helping me. So there's a permanent invite link in the description of this. Please join the Discord. It's, it's free to everybody. There'll be some specific channels for members, but come hang out. Yeah, nice. How many emojis uh, does it have though? Oh, I, yeah, I haven't smithed any new ones. I haven't forged any new ones, <laughs> but I am enjoying what's out there. And I'm liking people putting bisons up. That's always good. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to, I'm going to forge some emojis. <laughs> There'll just be sparks coming out of my computer later, but it's the hammer. <laughs> it's the emoji hammer hitting the emoji anvil. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, speaking of people who support this show, Today's topic is amazing to me because uh, thank you to Stephen Richard for suggesting the topic of fermentation, which was chosen in polls by listeners of the show. However, I got into researching fermentation. It's humongous. So I'm going to cover that with at least two separate episodes. And the first one is this one about yeast. There's going to be one later about pickling and then something else maybe after that. There's so much here. But Katie, we always start with what's your relationship to the topic or opinion of it? How do you feel about yeast? I like them personally. Um, I I actually have dealt with yeast. I have um, I, I used to have a, an aquarium. I had to give it away because I moved, but I wanted to have a lot of plants in the aquarium and have the the you can have these like fully planted aquariums where like the substrate you have aquatic grass and stuff growing out. But to get that level of greenery in your tank. It's useful to have an infusion of CO2 in your tank. Now, having CO2, like buying the little little miniature tanks of CO2 uh, is kind of expensive. It's kind of annoying. So I wanted to just homebrew some CO2. And the way to do uh. that is to fill a bottle with some yeast and some sugar <laughs> uh, and, you know, mix it up. And then the yeast just kind of goes to town. And then I connected a tube to the bottle full of yeast and that tube to a diffuser into the fish tank. And it actually worked really well. That's phenomenal. Matt, I researching this really taught me how little I knew about yeast going in. And now that I know about it, it's so cool that you set up that system. It makes sense to me. It's great. I, I put yeast farts in my fish tank and it made the plants grow. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, I, I'm, now I'm just thinking about home projects, but but we can dive straight <laughs> into like all sorts of fa- stats and numbers about this from here. Because yeah. on every episode, our first fascinating thing about the topic is a quick set of fascinating numbers and statistics. This week, that's in a segment called da 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 
Let's give them stats here to total up. Let's give them numbers to math about. Let's give them something to analyze. How about stats? I want to, I should get a little tambourine. (laughs) That's true. Maybe a tambourine emoji, right? That may or may not exist. I'm not going to look it up right now, but we'll just, on the Discord, we'll get some rhythm going. We'll do drum emojis and, you know. Clap emojis. The sound happens in your head as you read it. (laughs) And speaking of the Discord, this is the first Stats and Numbers name suggestion through the Discord. Thank you, S. Ross, for that fun idea. Bonnie Wright. And we have a new name for it every week. Please make them as silly and wacky and bad as possible. Submit through that SIF Discord. Also take ideas through SIFPod at gmail.com. But there's there's like a lot of elements to what yeast is. And and we'll talk about how it makes carbon dioxide and all these other things. But I want to start with one amazing recent story right away. The number is 4,500 years old. Wow. Pretty old. 4,500 years old. Did we, find is, a, did we find a yeast that old and interview it? Uh, nearly. We. <laughs> what happened is somebody found ancient Egyptian yeast of that age, 4,500 years old, wow. and then successfully baked bread. <laughs> <laughs> Which just, uh, I didn't think was possible at all. I thought yeast stops working after like a month. I don't know. It just seems to go pretty fast. Yeah, I guess I, I mean, it also seems like illegal just to like take old Egyptian yeast and then like bake some bread. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yes. Toast it. What are what are you like? Was this a scientific thing or was it just some person went and like pillaged some yeast from like a tomb? <laughs> <laughs> that was also my first question because I I have a very Indiana Jones that belongs in a museum, but even better than <laughs> him, where you don't break stuff and and give stuff to Nazis. And it turns out this is with scientific permission, but it seems to have mainly happened because. A guy is really popular and just had enough pull to get Egyptian yeast from actual scientists and archaeologists. Is he like popular for bread? He, it, I had never heard of this guy, but there's a guy named Seamus Blackley. Mm. And he mainly for work is a video game designer and executive. He's in the gaming industry. Okay. And and is big in it. He he is credited with being the designer of the original Microsoft Xbox. Okay, not yet seeing how bread comes into play. Agreed. And then the other <laughs> thing is like he is also in parallel to designing the Xbox, Seamus Blackley is also an amateur Egyptologist. And ah. then in his Twitter bio, he specifically calls himself a gastro-Egyptologist. Huh. Gastro is like a food prefix, like an eating stuff prefix. And the Egyptians are famous for their beer and for lots of things, in particular yeast-based things. When the COVID pandemic began, like lots of people got interested in baking. There was lots yeah. of, especially baking sourdough. And this guy, Seamus Blackley, is in his, like, Xbox palace or whatever and says, I'm going to get wild. (laughs) And so he uses various connections to museums and to professional Egyptologists, in particular an archaeological organization based in Australia. And then through the Australians, Blackley acquired scrapings of organic matter from the insides of Egyptian pottery and bakeware. And then he stuck some of the scrapings into 
like baking a loaf of bread and did not add traditional yeast. He said, let's see if this does the job. And it did. I see. Wow. Yeah, because like yeast, as far as I know about it, like it multiplies. So you can conceivably, if you treat that little scraping right, it will multiply enough that you can actually have a usable amount for bread. So I guess it's fine. I, I mean, I it seems yeah. like we're not going to run out of these scrapings, I guess, unless everyone wants to make ancient bread. Did he say what it tasted like? Did it taste like the wind blowing through the papyrus, the sun setting <laughs> on the Nile? We should have sent a poet. Oh, <laughs> like that, like you. Uh, yeah, he. It, the National Geographic has a picture of it, and to me, it looks like bread. It, it like it looks fine. Hmm. And then he said it was edible and puffy, and yeah, ah. I, I didn't get a lot of like flavor description, but uh, yeah, it just generated bread like you would think. It's amazing. Wow. It would be really funny if there was some ancient pathogen hiding amongst the yeast and we just get some kind of uh, zombie (laughs) pandemic from bread. (laughs) I'm like, this guy also morphed into an Anubis, but that seems fine. I mean, who doesn't, right? (laughs) That's getting older, you know? This would be a very creative start to a horror movie about some kind of mummy's curse, like specifically a baker mummy that was like, don't use my (laughs) yeast without permission. And then you do it. But now you're cursed with the baker mummy. And then you have to have a bake off between you and the mummy. I wrote a whole script. Uh, Go wild with that, Hollywood. (laughs) Mary Berry is uh, somehow manages to save the day. Man, I, I like Prue, but shout out Mary Berry, too. Man. It's they, her name. It's, it's good judges all around. Mm-hmm. Paul, I'm mixed on. I think the handshake is overly weighted. I think the lady judges also yeah. deserve an equivalent uh, marker of success to give the contestants. A Prue fist bump. I want to see it. Anything. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Anything. Yeah. She should, she should give you one piece of the jewelry or something. Those huge statement <laughs> necklaces she has. Like, here. Then you just carry it. Yeah. <laughs> I want, like, Prue to gently place her forehead against the contestant's forehead and just say, well done, my child. <laughs> Did we just start a religion? Wow, this is great. I think so. Uh, it sounds I really good. I think so. <laughs> a- ancient cursed bread religion. Let's go. Yeah, and, and this this thing in real life, like, it was 2020, he did it. And Blackley said, quote, we don't know if we got the ancient stuff, as in yeast, but if we did, it's this great moment because these guys are eating for the first time in 4,500 years, end quote. These guys, and, as in the yeast, are eating for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, he's very familiar with yeast, I guess. He's like, look at these fellas What he's talking about yeast. I mean, I feel that. I did feel a bit of a, like, I don't know, uh, maternal instinct towards my yeast when I was trying to keep keep it alive so that it would fill my uh, fish tank with its farts so that the plants would grow. <laughs> yeah, were you, I suppose you were feeding the yeast as time went on, like new yeah. sugar? Yeah, new sugar, kind of cool. like trying to... Also, like, you just kind of have to make sure that you don't, like, jangle them around too much. Uh, too vigorous stirring is bad for the yeast. Too little stirring is bad for the yeast. Too much heat is bad for the yeast. Too little heat mm. is bad for the yeast. There's a, it's very, uh, they're delicate little creatures in certain ways. Uh, in other ways, clearly they're not because they last for thousands of years. 
That because I also don't bake a lot of like bread. I bake a lot of cookies and cornbread and pastries and stuff, but but mm-hmm. not a lot of like bread bread. And so I don't really handle yeast very much. This this has been a real education here. It's funny because I have handled yeast a lot, but not to bake bread, just for their farts, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> I should try making bread though. Now that I, it's like I've I've uh, I understand yeast caretaking. Although I guess I'll feel a little sad because then I'll eat them. <laughs> Your husband's like, why haven't you turned the oven on? And you're like, I will. I will. I will. (laughs) I'm just saying goodbye to all of them individually. (laughs) I'm going to bake Dennis. I mean, the dough. The dough. It doesn't have a name yet. (laughs) Speaking of that, there's one more number here about recent times. It is 647%. 647%. That's the reported increase in U.S. baking yeast purchases during the third week of March 2020 versus the previous year. We got a little stir crazy, didn't we? <laughs> yes. And the following week of March, yeast was up 450% over the previous wow. year's week. And these are Nielsen numbers covered by NPR, but everybody attributed it to mid of March 2020. In the US, people said, okay, it's really a pandemic now. We're doing one big grocery stock up and we're buying yeast for at least one baking project. We're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel that. I, I didn't get into the bread baking thing during the pandemic, but I did learn how to crochet, so I could crochet like a bread koozie. <laughs> it kind of makes sense. I guess like there is maybe when you're in that situation, you have sort of an instinct to be able to do something basic like make bread. Like I make my food. I'm safe now. I am self-sufficient. I can make some bread. Yeah, and our there our little buddy here. The next number is one, much simpler. One yeast. Uh, <laughs> we're down to the last one. We gotta save it. One uh, one is the number of cells in a yeast organism. Yes, and that uh, that brings us to what yeast is. I I might not have necessarily known it is alive before researching this. I really didn't know a lot. Well, but. It doesn't look alive, right? Because it's like it comes out. There are these like tiny little pellets, and in the little baggie, and that those little pellets, like each one, is not like a yeast because like the yeast are very very small. Yeah. But then they make bread. But the idea that they're alive, that when you like add water to it, it actually comes back to life and does stuff, is pretty pretty wild. It really is, and and. We'll we'll talk a little bit later too about the difference between like essentially fresh yeast and then the active dry or instant yeast that's in the packets. You know, it's yeah because it it really handles being dormant well, which speaks to that ancient Egypt story too. Like yeast can just, especially if it gets dried out, it can just kind of wait to eat sugars, uh, yeah. which is it also makes it seem like it's just not alive at all. It's it's easily confusing. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of tardigrades, who are not unicellular organisms. They are multicellular, uh, so they are they're larger, they're more complicated. But they also tolerate being desiccated, dried out for long periods of time. And there have been like hundred over hundred year old tardigrades that can be revived with some water. So it's it is really interesting that some of these small organisms can figure out a way to endure basically being little mummified things. So I guess we are eating tiny mummies when you think about it. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And like just one of them is famous, like King Tut. 
the, all the others right. go, like, why are we choosing just the one that has a little crown? That's fun. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeast, I had no idea what type of life form it is. And according to Associate Professor Laura Rush of the University at Buffalo, go Bulls, uh, she says that yeast is a fungus that grows as a single cell rather than as a mushroom. Uh, so, like, I guess tiny, tiny takeaway here. Yeast is fungus. I didn't know that. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And yeah, and they're all single-celled funguses. And then Scientific American says that some yeasts have multiple reproductive options, including the common baker's yeast or brewer's yeast that we're used to. They can either do something called budding, which is where a mother cell grows a protrusion that eventually splits off as a new yeast, or they can reproduce sexually by subdividing into two spores and then those combine with other spores. Yeah, I feel like this is also another a common thing with a lot of like these smaller organisms or microscopic organisms. You see it in, in larger organisms like coral polyps uh, or even aphids where they have like asexual reproduction oh. and budding is an asexual form of reproduction. Um, but then they can also have sexual reproduction where they they send out spores that can you know basically sexually combine and i i think that that it's interesting that a lot of these organisms uh have that kind of dual thing where it's like yeah you know what once in a while we got to shuffle the deck we got to do some sexual reproduction but for a lot of the time we can just kind of like you know poop out another me <laughs> i love the idea of them being like people who are playing a card game and say it's not shuffled up enough i hate that feeling yeah <laughs> but species wide like it's come on come on it's, it's shuffling it's true though because like you got to introduce uh, like introducing some genetic diversity into your 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 genes like it, it is really helpful so like yes by budding you can very quickly increase your number and it's a sort of efficient way to reproduce in that way but if you can introduce some amount of like sexual reproduction every so often that increases your genetic diversity that means that you're better able to cope with environmental challenges so yeah it's uh i think that is cool. that is interesting it's a a technique used by a number of organisms some that we can actually see like coral because the, the other number here about these these uh, species is many hundreds, because it turns out that's how many different yeast species there are. Hundreds yeah. and hundreds of yeast species all over the world. And uh, many of them do not have specific roles in the food we eat. But Professor Rush at Buffalo says that they're found, quote, everywhere in nature, everywhere from tree sap to grape skins. And also sometimes yeasts are traveling through the air around us. And you can kind of catch them to make a sourdough starter or something like that. I God, that made me think of like breathable bread. Like if I could like huff, just like take a big, deep <laughs> breath and just have the experience of eating a nice freshly baked loaf of bread. That would be so wonderful. Uh, but I guess that's not quite what you're talking about. Uh, how, do you know how many species of yeast are used in, in baking? It turns out there is like one particular one that in modern times we use for tons of purposes, and it's called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Saccharomyces cerevisiae is what we call baker's yeast, mm -hmm. and it is also what we call brewer's yeast. 
And that second thing that's tucked into the scientific name because cerevisiae is a Latin word meaning of beer or from beer. Ah, interesting. From taking high school Spanish, I remembered that cerveza means beer in Spanish. So when I saw that, I was uh, like, yeah. is that beer? Hold on. And it, it was. It was very exciting. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Shout out beer. It's great. Shout out to beer. <laughs> you, that's so interesting. It's like we we culti- probably cultivated the same use for like making beer and making bread. Uh, do you know like what what humans kind of prioritized? Did we come up with bread or did we come up with beer first in terms of using yeast? Apparently leavened bread first, yeah. And okay, then, okay. And also some of the first of both of those was in Egypt. It, it really seems oh, like yeah. Egypt, the, the whole world's been using yeast and doing cool things with it, but the ancient Egyptians really pushed it. They really went for it. Yeah. And there's yeast just everywhere <laughs> in a way that is kind of hard to cogitate because everywhere in the world, there's a lot of what we now call wild yeast, which is yeast that humans didn't put anywhere. It's just on things and then gets cooked in. <laughs> um, and also, don't forget, there are yeasts on human bodies. Uh, all of us yeah. listening to this and uh, speaking on it uh, are covered in yeast. The medical school of Aww, John's gross. Hop- <laughs> I take it back. I take it back. Keep listening. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, the the medical school of Johns Hopkins University, go Blue Jays, uh, they say forms of yeast live all over us, in particular on our skin, uh, and the most in spots where skin folds over, such as the navel. We also have yeast in our fingernail beds and toenail beds, in our genitals, and in our mouths. And next number here with that is more than 700 because apparently there are more than 700 microorganism types, including yeast, found inside a healthy person's mouth. Yeah. Like there's just all sorts of... And, and I love I'd Creature Feature, Katie, when you talk about being a host of many parasites. Because, yeah, yeah. We're, we're covered in stuff. It's just going on at a small scale. We really are. Every man is kind of an island full of life. Like, if I recall correctly, like, yeast can sometimes cause us problems on our body in terms of, like... Um, sort of skin irritation and things uh but like yeah. typically it's it's okay and it's like <laughs> i think the least creepy thing that lives a microscopic organism that lives on our body because like we've got we got stuff like uh dermadex this time the eyelash mites and you look at those guys uh they're they're too tiny to see with the naked eye but they when you zoom in on them they look like a alien beaver with a lot of legs yeah but in a bad way. I mean, that sounded pretty good in some ways. It's in a bad way. A flesh, a, a flesh-colored alien beaver with t- too long of a tail, yeah. too many legs. That's fun. So cool, cool, cool. yeah, yeah. But they're just kind of they typically don't cause problems. But I, but they sometimes do. I mean, that's kind of like I feel like that's generally the thing. We we have a bunch of these organisms on us. They typically don't cause problems. But when things get out of balance, uh, or you have immune issues or something, uh, they they can cause issues. That's right. Yeah, yeah. All our naturally occurring yeasts are good for us, as far as I could tell, or at least neutral. And then, yeah, a yeast infection is when there's either too many yeast or something wrong with the balance of them. Or yeah, there, there's right. like that's that just means something that is normally on you is out of whack, but it, it should still be there in general. Yeah, it's not. It's it's not necessarily only like it's not the yeast's fault entirely. Generally speaking, they just kind of hang out. Yeah, they're just being our buddies as we, you know, bake bread with other yeasts and listen to podcasts. It's cool. It's all good. (laughs) 
<laughs> a coupler and a fish tank if you're Katie. You know, it's just sure. it's just a world of yeast. It's no, really, see, really have... everywhere in a way I still kind of can't comprehend fully, but I've, I've read about it enough to understand it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't recommend dumping baker's yeast directly into your fish tank. Don't do that. Got to use a series of tubes and valves to get the yeast farts in the fish tank but not have the yeast go into the fish tank. So, yeah. <laughs> and it's not to make moonshine. I was not making, like, fish tank moonshine, as some allege. <laughs> yeah, Your Honor, I'm here for the carbon dioxide. That's all. And then a fish lawyer is <laughs> like, mm, I'll think about it. Uh, I, it, did, it did start to smell a little bit like beer. And I was sort of <laughs> curious about tasting it, but I never did because I didn't want to go blind. Good job. Yeah, that's important. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a thing. And, and all that leads into the first of two big takeaways for this episode about yeast. And we'll start with takeaway number one. People used yeast for thousands of years before they totally understood what it is. That makes sense. We didn't have microscopes. Exactly, yeah. And I I just love this as a way to find out the scope of how humans have used yeast over time for thousands of years. And then also, not only how recently microscopic viewing of them is, but then further centuries of research needed to figure out what they were looking at. It's It's been a mystery, but also a thing we figured out in a practical way at the same time. I mean, they're tiny and they make our bread puff up. Of course we wouldn't get it. Like, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. And it, and if you're me before research and walking around the world, you're like, I don't know, it goes in bread. And then that's that's all you think about it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and then here comes the fermentation suggestion. Now you got to know a bunch of stuff. And it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. I, it, to me, it blows my mind we figured out anything at all at any point about like how <laughs> yes. how to use it and even like how I, I don't even know how we managed to isolate it and, and like figure out how to use the like co like cultivate the yeast like, oh, here's some goo that like made this food better. I guess I keep the goo like what? I, I don't understand. There's still yeast all around us in the world, and you can do a lot of just, like, attracting yeast to a thing it wants to eat and then make that into a starter for bread. Like, there's a lot of just accepting yeast from the world is how we first right. started using it. It's so strange. <laughs> so did we kind of, like, we would just sort of leave bread dough out or sugars out, and the yeast would just come to it, and then yeah. we're like, hey, great, but we didn't realize yeast was doing stuff? Yeah, and the, the loose theory is that thousands of years ago, we were making unleavened breads, like the like flat breads, and then accidentally left some dough out and collected yeast by mistake. And that's how we found out how to leaven bread and make it rise. But that's, right. that's a theory because it's, it's so many thousands of years ago. Yeah. There was a lot of storing yeast in the coolest places we can, and it, it's a whole process. Because if it's not this packet from the grocery store dried out yeast, you need to refrigerate it or keep it cool. And so... Uh, it was a lot of labor, yeah. Like, I imagine if there was some guy way back then, and he was like, there's little tiny organisms in our bread, and it's making it puffy, like, he would probably get stoned to death. <laughs> and he was too correct. Yes, he was canceled. <laughs> That's cancel culture, folks, being stoned. For 
bread bread beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, the the like super basics of how yeast functions in our foods and drinks. The shortest answer is fermentation. Mm-hmm. And one key source for this episode is a really exciting book to me. It's called Our Fermented Lives: A History. It's by fermentation expert and food historian Julia Skinner. And she says that the shortest definition of fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. Hmm. When we ferment a food, it's because we allow tiny organisms to do something to it, usually either a bacteria or a yeast. Those are those are the two main ones. That's part of why this is multiple episodes. That's a lot to cover. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that, yeah, I guess that make, that really does make sense. Like, I guess I hadn't really thought about a definition for fermentation. I've always just been like, you know, stuff goes bad, but it in a good way. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I was like, oh, we let it get old or vinegary or something. That was my understanding. Yeah, it goes bad. Just narrowing down to yeast fermentation. Again, these are all fungi. And so they ferment things by eating sugars, as you knew yes. with your fish tank setup. And the basic exchange is yeast eats simple sugars and then it turns that into carbon dioxide and into ethanol. You can generally mm-hmm. call the ethanol alcohol, but because it's a fungus, it doesn't need oxygen. Like if folks have heard the truffles episode, we talked about how truffles can be underground and not breathe oxygen because they're fungus. They don't breathe oxygen. So we can just stick yeast into our foods. It doesn't suffocate. And then it eats sugars and generates these two main byproducts, carbon dioxide and ethanol. It also sometimes makes a broad category of stuff called flavor molecules, which is that either the yeast or its byproducts do something that changes the flavor to our human tongue and taste. That's my favorite kind of molecule, the flavor ones. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just some some Nobel medal being given to Guy Fieri. Like, here you go. Yeah. Uh, like, like, honey, can you pass the flavor molecules? <laughs> it, I found when raising my legion of yeasts, uh, they really they really loved just plain white sugar. It was very simple to take care of them. Easy to please. Yeah, it does. And it seems like that's a lot of how yeast became such an early friend of ours in cooking, that they, they're they pretty straightforward once you know. They're a fungus that wants to eat sugar, and then it will make us gases and alcohol. And that's that's the setup. And there's like a little heat that comes from that because it's also making energy for itself by eating. But it's an exchange that people figured out kind of worldwide, especially in Egypt, but everywhere. Yeah, and it's any kind of sugar. It's not just like cane sugar. It could be sugars from wherever you find sugars. Like you have sugars in in apples. I'm sure wheat has some sugars in it. So it's like any any kind of uh, yeah. sugar out there. It will will eat those simple sugars. That's right. Yeah, and the range of foods fermented with yeast. A lot of it comes out of that sugars and stuff naturally. Uh, for example, wine is fermented with yeast. Many grapes have yeasts on their skin already, so you you just have yeast going into your product. There are also a lot of winemakers, especially in modern times, adding yeast intentionally. There's also apparently an element where that thing winemakers famously do where they stomp on grapes with their bare feet, apparently that adds like human foot yeasts. Oh, God, why? Uh, Oh, Oh, no, That, that one got me. I don't know. I'm like... I, like yeah, oh sure. yeah, eating eating billions of little microorganisms. That's fine, but like we got we got to get the foot yeast in there. Oh my god! 
I what if this was all an op to get people to like switch from wine to beer? Like, and we're sponsored <laughs> by beer. <laughs> anyway, uh, all you really need is to soak your foot fungus in probably like a two hundred dollar bottle of wine. Yeah, uh, we're humans are weird, <laughs> and and like our love of alcohol is a big part of yeast becoming our friend. Because then, like, as the grapes ferments, the the fermentation is yeast generating alcohol for it and making it alcoholic. Ironically, I feel like I would need a glass of wine before feeling comfortable drinking wine that I knew had feet in it. Well, you can use our other beverage friends, I guess, to, to kick it off. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeast is also a crucial ingredient in beer. You turn grain and water into a mash, which is called a wort, and then you let yeast oh. eat the sugars and the wort. So also so yeast is going into beer. It's one of the like four core ingredients of beer. So I've got feet in wine and I've got warts in beer. Sounds great. Yeah. Sounds delicious. <laughs> it, the, word, the word is W-O-R-T. And I, I uh-huh. guess in like medieval England that sounded normal, Wart. but it makes me think of foot problems. Yeah, for sure. No, but that's great. Like, yeah, I, that's, that's great. Let's, let's get those little guys in there uh, and make those warts into beer yeah and in both those beverages the yeast is putting out alcohol to make them alcoholic and then indirectly yeast gives us liquor because it turns out once a substance becomes too alcoholic the yeast can no longer grow and thrive it's too toxic the the limit is around 18 percent alcohol by volume and so we get liquor by fermenting a base with yeast and then using machines to distill that into a harder alcohol so it's also playing a part there. Like we, it turns out whiskey is a distilled version of beer wort. I had no idea. Yeah, that makes sense because it is it is a little funny to think of like any anything surviving up to the point of alcohol because we use alcohol to kill stuff and disinfect things. Yeah, yeast is playing a dangerous game. It's like I'm <laughs> filling my own space with alcohol and I can't live in too much of it. It's a daredevil. Living life on the edge. Yeah, I guess they would have been fine if we hadn't come up with a bright idea of distilling it down to its most potent toxic form. That's tough for them. We're not a good friend. Uh. Yeah. (laughs) This alcohol is tasty. Let's make it harder and also burn more. (laughs) And the other probably most famous food for yeast is breads, uh, any leavened bread. Mm-hmm. And that's where yeast makes that bread rise because you put it in and it eats the sugars and then it releases the two ingredients, carbon dioxide and uh, ethanol alcohol. The carbon dioxide lifts the dough and then also inside of a hot oven, all that alcohol just burns up and the alcohol burns up and turns into more gases. So you're really getting two gases from the yeast when you bake bread. And that's why you get all those like bubbles in your bread and that's why it's so fluffy. Yeah, even even some relatively flat shaped breads, like there's a bread called injera that is used mainly in like Ethiopian food. It's the the rolls of a flat shaped bread that you pick it up with. That still uses yeast too. Like there, there's a very limited range of totally unleavened breads. Yeast is in the rest of it. Yeah, matzo is totally unleavened, and yeah, that's it's that's very the famous yeah one very dense yeah yeah. yeah. And there's uh, Irish soda bread is made with baking soda instead of yeast. Oh, interesting. And then like another category of yeast fermentation is acetic acid fermentation, which usually uses a combination of bacteria and yeast. So we get kombucha and kefir and ginger beer 
using a starter culture that is called a SCOBY. That's an acronym. S-C-O-B-Y, symbiotic combination of bacteria and yeast. I'm so going to need, team. I'm going to need like people who are making yeast things to come up with less gross words for stuff like wart and scoby. Like, I don't want to feel like I'm eating <laughs> a pustule or drinking a pustule in, in my drink, but you know, yeah, call them yeast nodules. No, nope, that's not good either. Ah. It's hard, actually. It's hard. <laughs> like excelsior lifting fungus. Yeah, it still has fungus in it. It's just not yeah, going to work. Yeah, <laughs> when, And with the timeline of using this, the recipes are ancient. We said that leavened bread starts in Egypt. That was about 6,000 years ago. Then not too long after that, beer making mainly begins in ancient Egypt. And their beers are more alcoholic than U.S. beers, but the super basic ingredient list is pretty similar. And the, a lot of these other recipes are ancient too. Vox.com says the first kombucha recipes date back almost 2,500 years to Qin Dynasty China. Wow. Um, so, you know, we've been using it long before we knew the stuff at, earlier in the show about it being fungus. Like, <laughs> no one knew been that, around, but they just trial and errored it and used it. Been around all that time, and I still haven't tried it. Oh, kombucha? Yeah. It's pretty good, but you get used to it, yeah. It's intimidating to me. It honestly reminds me of the first time you try beer, and you're like, yuck. But then you get used to it, and it's good, yeah. <laughs> So it's probably a whole yeast family thing. I'm still trying to figure out if I've been gaslit by beer to think it tastes good. Like if I've just been like, yes, this bad flavor is good, actually. (laughs) Some Morpheus in the Matrix type figure is going to give you a pill and open your eyes. You'll be like, oh, this was gross spread the whole time. Weird. Yeah, you're you're eating yeast farts. Yeah, and I know it's still bread. It's still good. She's beginning to understand. He's in the ship, like watching you figure it out. (laughs) So yeast farts are good. No. (laughs) Like as far as observation of it, there's a funny thing where yeast is the reason we have the word fermentation in English for that process. Hmm. The, The journal Nature says fermentation comes from the Latin word fervere, which means to boil. Hmm. And that's not what yeast does. Yeast does not boil food. But early winemakers observed their mixture of crushed grapes with all their weird yeasts in it, and they saw bubbles. And the bubbles yeah. are because the yeast is producing gases. But they said, oh, that, that visually resembles boiling. That's what I'm going to call it. Yeah, when I would uh, when I would feed my yeast uh, sugar and they would multiply and ex- exude <laughs> gases, uh, yeah, they, they, it would bubble up. It looked like a like I'd just shake it up a soft drink. Cool. I, I guess it was surprisingly active. It's so neat. It it really enriches my mental picture of all these food processes. There's so many other recipes where it's just A and B and C and put them together, and and this is like gather your fungal friend who will live in the food. Like, oh, it's cool. <laughs> cool to me now it it does feel like witchcraft doesn't it yeah yes exactly it's a it's a harry potter potions class recipe in a good way right right just like take the little little bubbles or i don't i don't know boofins i I don't really know i don't remember harry potter critter names but you know the little guy (laughs) like there's just like a bunch of little guys and it's like yeah we just like take the little blue bins and then we put them in bread and eat them and they are sentient, yeah. yes, but we're wizards and we do not care about that. 
<laughs> some someday I will seek out information about how the author of Harry Potter thought of this stuff. And the author of Harry Potter is Daniel Radcliffe. I don't know if people have seen that on the internet or, or aware of it, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to take Alex aside for a minute, and he's going to come back real sad. <laughs> and whoosh sound. Edit out weeping. Whoosh sound. And we're back, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but the like the last part of this takeaway is Europeans in particular theorizing and discovering what yeast actually is. The, the, everyone just knew it works. And then as recently as the mid-1700s, they thought yeast was not a living thing. And then it took the dawn of microscopes and lots more study to figure it out. The journal Nature says it's, it's a famous Dutch scientist, Antony van Leeuwenhoek. He was the first person to like observe yeast cells because he developed lenses for magnification and kind of the early microscopes. He observed yeast cells in the year 1680, but he decided those were globules in a fluid that were probably just starchy particles left over from brewing beer. He was like, well, I see globules. Who cares? So he was Anthony von Leeuwenhoek? Yeah. Is that why we call it Leeuwening? <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, hey, Anthony, do you want some matzo? He's like, no, thanks. And it's like, okay, well, we're calling this something else then. Uh, get out of here, <laughs> you jerk. It's quite good. It's dense, but that's part of the appeal. You know, it's good. <laughs> So so he observes it and also doesn't figure it out in 1680. And then a century and a half goes by. The next advance in understanding yeast is in 1838. A French scientist named Charles Caguenard de la Tour brings a microscope to a brewery in Paris. That's fun. Bring a microscope to that a brewery. Just, it does feel like a drunk scientist thing to do, though. Like he's already had okay. uh, some beer and he's like, oh, let will take a closer look at this. Let's why don't I have another? And I take just a real close look at this one. Just drinking it, <laughs> sipping it, sloshing it under the microscope. I gotta, gotta examine this beer for quality. <laughs> yeah, he beer is a lot of the the thread of finding this stuff out. He looks at the brewery like wart, and he observes yeast reproduction, which mm. which uh, Leeuwenhoek did not see. And Cagnard de la Tour says, I see yeast reproducing. I theorize that yeast is a living thing. 1838, yeah. we begin to think this. And then. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes it, it makes a lot of sense that we wouldn't understand that a thing we literally cannot see with the naked eye. Yeah. Uh, we didn't think it was alive and doing yeast budding and weird yeast sex and all that. That too, the multiple reproductive systems, you would just think your like vision is wrong or something. You know, like yeah. I clearly I need to wipe these lenses down with a big cloth or something. I I'm, I'm, <laughs> or I've had seven beers. Seven beers. That's probably why. Okay. <laughs> I think you've had enough, buddy. Haven't you heard of sample sizes? <laughs> uh, and then uh, and after him, another probably more famous French scientist, Louis Pasteur. He laid out basic theories behind yeast fermentation in 1876, and there was still more research to do from there. As recently as 1907, a German scientist named Eduard Buchner won the 1907 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for an advance in understanding cell-free yeast fermentation. 
where if you just pull out specific elements of yeast's functions, you can put those chemicals into something to ferment it. Like this is like a relatively cutting edge thing, understanding the yeast that we've used forever. Yeah. Again, it's weird to me. We would even understand that yeast exists. Like how do we figure out something exists without being able to see it? We just kind of understand the effect it has on stuff. And so I'm like, I got to hand it to humanity. I'm impressed we figured out as much as we did. Yeah, good for us, you know? And yeast, yeast this whole time is going, we are here, we are here. And we're like, yeah, we we can't hear you. That's like elephant stuff. Like, leave us out of this. <laughs> hey, I'm drinking. That, that was basically the take <laughs> Shut up, you, I'm drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Just generations of Barney from The Simpsons. Like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, and folks, that was a huge takeaway. We're going to rest up from it and take a break. And when we're back, the Fleischmann family will change the world. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! It's hard to explain what happens on Jordan Jesse Go. So, I had my kids do it. Saying swear words. Saying swear words. Yeah, um, bad jokes. Bad jokes? Bad jokes. Maybe it's like you tell people that you're going to interview them, and then you just stay there like, like really quiet. And try and creep them out. <laughs> it's just really boring. Because of Jordan, right? Not me. Because of both of you. Oh. Subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show for grown-ups. Folks, welcome back and welcome to the other big takeaway for this main episode. Takeaway number two. Mass-produced American yeast impacted the course of World War II and Silicon Valley and comedy. Wow, I I feel like the, a lot of things connect back to World War II. If folks heard the Paperclips episode, that was almost a World War II history podcast. Uh, that, yeah. that is less common with other topics, but this one touches on World War II, yeah. Because it was a, especially a 1940s U.S. thing where the Fleischmann Company started doing active dry yeast, which you may have bought, especially if you're an American baker or shopper. Yes, that's exclusively what I have gotten when I've gotten yeast. The key sources here, it's Julia Skinner's book, Our Fermented Lives, also Pieces for Mental Floss by Michelle Dabchak and for Vice by Michelle Bakalintal. This is really about the whole process of getting packets of dry yeast in a store rather than needing to have some kind of culture going of, of yeast. And the starting point is 1871. 1871 is when an Austrian baron invented commercial yeast starters, like the industrial process of developing those. His name is 
Baron Maximilian Freiherr von Springer. Of course it is. Yeah. That's that's exactly what I was imagining, yes. Did he have a mustache? He must have had a mustache. I'm just going to decide he did. I don't have any pictures. Yeah. But come on, Austrians, That's that was their whole deal in the 1800s, facial hair. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes sense that like a rich baron would, with a name like that, would come up with dry packaged yeast. And, and technically, this wasn't the start of the dry kind, but this was, he had the idea of like industrial facilities to distribute the fresh kind. He said, I see. Okay. He said, I'm going to extract yeast from beer brewing wort, sell that yeast on its own to bakeries. And there were people doing this on a small scale, but he thought of doing it on a big scale. And Julia Skinner says everyone immediately copied this 1871 idea. Like the next year, a French company called Le Saf opened the, their first industrial yeast making plants. And apparently they are the largest yeast maker in the world to this day. Wow. In the U.S., we have the other famous company for this, which is Fleischmann's, which I was see. founded okay. by two brothers, Charles and Max Fleischmann who migrated from Hungary to Cincinnati, Ohio. They scored a spot at the 1876 Centennial Expo in Philadelphia to promote their like fresh yeast and became just a major fresh yeast producer at an industrial scale in the U.S. That's really interesting. I imagine it's not entirely straightforward because like you have to make sure that your yeast is just yeast because you're you have you're growing sort of these microorganisms. How do you know there aren't other guys joining the party that you maybe don't want in there? They're a big part of why Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I know that's the only super specific yeast species we've talked about, but this industrialization is part of why that one is the main one because apparently it's a very consistent flavor, very consistent shelf life and ease of breeding. And so these companies help make that one of the main yeasts we use because, yeah, you want some kind of stability in your product. Yeah, that's interesting. So they just like have big old vats of these yeasts that they feed, keep alive and then package. Yeah. Or else like pick up from other processes done by other companies. Like apparently the Fleischmann's also got a gin distillery going. Because hmm. the process of having the raw material for getting yeast also fit in well with making gin. And so they were one of the first major makers of that in the U.S. It's it's a whole system of culturing various funguses and making foods. I guess I don't know that much about what gin is. I just thought it was a hard liquor of some kind. Yeah, gin is a grain base, it turns out, and then there's juniper and other things going into it. But yeah, there's just all these different things coming together. It's so many liquors start from grain. It's just yeah. <laughs> very simply <laughs> that. But they dress it up, and then like there's a, a guy in a, in a cool old-timey outfit standing on a barrel. Yeah, they, they try to make it more interesting. But You kind of have to have that guy stand on the barrel, because it gets it, flavorings from his feet uh, seep into the barrel. <laughs> Boot yeast, yeah. Gross. <laughs> like next time, like some, you get like a athlete's foot, and someone's like, "Oh, that's that's gross." It's like, no, no, I'm cultivating yeast for some uh, specialty <laughs> alcohol. So you're welcome. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so gross. Because this this yeast production too, like Fleischmann's and Lasaf, they they become huge companies before developing this packet yeast in the store, but basically by becoming just dominant through scale for fresh yeast, they also start putting capital into 
is there any way to make a yeast that does not need to be refrigerated and a yeast that lasts for more than a couple of days? Like, like it, we need to do just something that is, is more handy. And in the 1940s, they hit on active dry yeast, a yeast that is a packet of what looks like crystals or granules, and then it can just sit dormant and then be activated by adding hot water. Yeah. Yeah, I, I found that with my yeast, like the temperature of the water was important because if it's too hot, it doesn't, it kills them. But if it's too cold, it doesn't activate them. So they're a little bit fussy, but still, yeah, it, it was, uh, it, I, I what, do you know like what the process is to convert them from squishy wet yeast to dry yeast that can tolerate being dried <laughs> out like that? Yeah, the basic gist is they dry it out and also physically press it. And so mm. that lets it just sort of wait for for future use, kind of like that strange Egyptian culture that the mm. inventor of the Xbox or whatever was using. <laughs> that, that basic process, that's how we got active dry yeast. And then also those companies in the 1980s developed instant yeast. And as I understand it, the baking community has strong opinions about active dry yeast versus instant yeast. They are not quite the same thing, but there's also similarities. They're both dried out yeast. The differences are that active dry yeast needs to spend some minutes bubbling in the dough, and mm -hmm. instant yeast can just work immediately. Also, this dormant yeast, it's still an organism with a lifespan. It can die and stop working. And with active dry yeast, you can see whether it's alive because of the bubbling, but instant yeast will not bubble either way. You don't have a way to check before you start baking. Interesting. Yeah, I think I only used active dry yeast. I don't think I ever used uh, instant yeast because I wanted the bubbling. <laughs> yeah, two, <laughs> two of my limited yeast experiences are seeing both of these kinds in the store and not knowing the difference. And then going through cabinets and finding some active dry yeast that has been there too long and it's dead. <laughs> and I'm like, I am wasteful and I judge myself. <laughs> so a lot of, lot of joyful yeast experiences for this fella before researching. <laughs> In case people want to know, active dry yeast, apparently it can sit on a shelf for about one to two years and still be alive. So, so you have some time. If, if you're really irresponsible like me, it will pass away. But but you can you can still use it for a while. <laughs> kind of reminds me in a way of sea monkeys because you'd get these oh, yeah. uh, sea monkeys. They'd be dried, desiccated. You put them in water and hopefully come alive unless they're too old, in which case they don't. They're just brine shrimp, uh, which is right. just a little shrimp. Tiny yeah. shrimp. So they're not in the gorilla family. That's what you're saying. <laughs> no, <laughs> they are tiny crustaceans. Uh, also, you shut up barnacles. Yeah, <laughs> depends on who they're marketing it to. Children, sea monkeys, fun little friends that uh, look like weird multi-legged aliens, and then to people who want to feed their fish, is is food for your fish. Yeah, as as humans, we are so into taking species and sort of packaging them for ourselves, and especially yeah. yeast and sea monkeys. We were like, we're going to put you in a little envelope, and I'll use you when I need yeah. you. And it seems to work for everybody, but it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing we do it. And yeah, and this, this active dry yeast in the 1940s was revolutionary. And I listed a couple things this impacted, which is World War II, Silicon Valley, and comedy. Uh, yes. The, the first two are really fast. Fleischmann's rolled this out in 1943, and the U.S. military immediately said, thank you. Because, uh, <laughs> like, shelf-stable yeast for the whole U.S. war machine in World War II, 
you know, it, it didn't like win the war or nothing, but it just made military baking and feeding the troops a lot easier across the board. Yeah, that makes sense. There's like soldiers march on their bellies and also yeast and they like fluffy bread. Yeah, exactly. And it was easier to bake it for them than any past army in all of history. It's, it's wild. <laughs> it's, it's a really handy thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny how like just these little things, these little details really do affect history in weird ways. Yeah. And then uh, another like almost butterfly effect thing is Silicon Valley. Fleischmann's sold this to the military first to help. And then after World War II, sold it in stores post-war. They went from being already the dominant U.S. yeast company to, to this day, being hugely dominant. And their family became generationally wealthy. The impact on Silicon Valley is that the great, great, great granddaughter of Charles Fleischmann is Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> Uh, the disgraced founder of Theranos, which was the fake blood testing mm -hmm. company. Uh, she's a direct descendant of them. And according to the podcast, The Dropout, that lineage put a lot of pressure on her to become wealthy and a winner at all costs and, and might see. have influenced the whole thing. And we're, we're still measuring the impact, but that, but her whole situation really put a dent in Silicon Valley's reputation and, and uh, vibe. Maybe she should have just gotten really good at baking and been like, this is my heritage sourdough bread that <laughs> cures cancer, by the way. <laughs> you got down there vocally. I really appreciate it. That was awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love, I, I mean, obviously she's a scammer, a bad person. She hurt a lot of people, but the fake deep voice thing, I, I'm someone who has like a, relatively natural high-pitched voice and i sometimes try to bring it down like a little bit for podcasting but n like the commitment that that woman does to bring her voice down right. to like like this is my natural speaking voice i am authoritative i make bread that can cure everything yeah. and it comes in pill form permanent fake voice that's not a life to live no what if somebody surprises you or something you'll slip and I you're just, just your blood pressure would be through the roof all the time. I just admire the commitment to the bit. And then, so that's World War II in Silicon Valley. The last thing here is comedy, uh, because the Fleischmann impact on comedy is is accidental and huge. Uh, and it starts with the Catskill Mountains. Huh. Catskill Mountains are they're north of New York City. They're the traditional lands of the Mohican peoples and the Muncie Lenape people. And I'll link especially Hudson Valley Magazine about that. But Catskill is a Dutch name. Colonizing Europeans made it part of southern New York State. There, there's a whole history of Americans like beginning to vacation. They're just kind of coming up with that as, a, as an activity. And one of the first spots was the Catskill Mountains, the beautiful woods and mountains up there near New York City. Uh, in the early 1800s, all these villages of vacation cottages pop up. The first U.S. large resort hotel in the whole U.S. was in the Catskills in 1824. And then the wrinkle with all this is that the first vacationing and resort things in the Catskills were built by Gentiles, and the Fleischmanns were Jewish Americans. And despite their wealth, they, along with all other Jewish Americans, were barred from most of these resorts and facilities and places. It was uh, what's called restricted. Yeah. Um, and it was just discrimination. It's But yeah. the response from Charles Fleischmann was, hey, I'm incredibly wealthy from yeast. 
And so he just purchased a chunk of Catskills land and built his own resort. He's like, great, I'm just going to do that. And then <laughs> me and anybody else can go. We Jewish people can vacation here. And we're going to have the best bakeries here. And they they like ended up having the best comedy. Because from there, like, Fleischmann's Resort sparked a specifically Jewish-American trend, especially coming from New York City, of vacationing in the Catskills, especially starting in the 1920s. And that ended up being a whole circuit for Jewish comedians to get gigs and also, like, play to mostly Jewish audiences a lot of times for the first time. And eventually the name Borscht Belt got applied to that location and to its comedy style. (laughs) <laughs> and the, the, the like resorts and that specific Jewish folks practice is pretty much gone now. But basically every American stand-up comedian and comedy writer performer, they've been influenced by key, especially Jewish comedians who got going up there. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always had this sense that like a lot of these sort of Jewish comedy style, it's done because like when you're excluded from a lot of society or oppressed, like you got to kind of have a way to cope with that and humor is one way and the fact that that sort yeah. of uh you know stomping ground for all these comedians was literally created because uh the fleischmans were excluded from the other uh areas yeah that's, that's really interesting yeah like the yeah the discrimination was so strong even charles fleischman's wealth couldn't solve it yeah. And they were like, no, you can't come. And he was like, I'm going to fully build my own resort. And they were like, fine, sounds good. Great. Enjoy. Like, it's, wow. it's wild. And he did enjoy it immensely. And he did. And then we got everybody funny, either <laughs> who either did it there or was influenced by it. Yeah. We all, we all uh, can thank yeast. <laughs> it's all because of yeast. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main episode for this week. Welcome to the outro with fun features for you. Starting with help remembering this episode, let's run back through this week's big takeaways. Takeaway number one, people used yeast for thousands of years before they totally understood what it is. Takeaway number two, mass-produced American yeast changed the course of World War II and Silicon Valley and comedy. And before those two humongous takeaways, stats about everything from Egyptian yeast still working to the yeasts all around us and on us. Those are the takeaways. Also, I said that's the main episode because there is more secretly incredibly fascinating stuff available to you right now. If you support this show at MaximumFun.org, members get a bonus show every week where we explore one obviously incredibly fascinating story related to the main episode. This week's bonus topic is the astounding past and present of research on yeast genetics. Visit sifpod.fun for that bonus show, for a library of almost 11 dozen other bonus shows, and a catalog of all sorts of Maximum Fun, Boko. It's special audio just for you. Thank you for being somebody who backs this podcast operation. Additional fun things? Check out our research sources. Key sources this week include the book Our Fermented Lives, A History, which is by fermentation expert and award-winning food historian Julia Skinner. Also, digital resources from places including Johns Hopkins University, National Geographic, and the journal Nature. 
That page also features resources such as native-land.ca. I'm using those to acknowledge that I recorded this on the traditional land of the Canarsi and Lenape peoples. Also, Katie taped this in the country of Italy, and I want to acknowledge that in my location and in many other locations in the Americas and elsewhere, Native people are very much still here. That feels worth doing on each episode. Speaking of my co-hosts, Katie Golden, please dig her weekly podcast, Creature Feature, about animals, science, and more. Our theme music is Unbroken Unshaven by the Budos Band. Our show logo is by artist Burton Durand. Special thanks to Chris Souza for audio mastering on this episode. Extra, extra special thanks go to our members. And thank you to all our listeners. I'm thrilled to say we will be back next week with more secretly incredibly fascinating. So how about that? Talk to you then. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.